There had been abuse in my family, but it was mostly musical in nature. lover's lament crap. I want something peppy, something happy, something up-tempo. I want something snappy. Throughout its long and storied history, Electro Records has been one of the most adventurous and diverse labels in the music business. Now it's turning 65. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We talk to Electro Records founder Jack Holzman and review the long-awaited new album from hip-hop duo Cannibal Ox. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, Jim, and later on you and I are going to talk about this new Cannibal Ox record. And i got to say I'm pretty excited that we have a Cannibal Ox record. We had a Bermuda Triangle episode a while back in which we discussed artists who have sort of dropped off the map after making a great album. And Cannibal Ox is one of those groups. I mean, this duo made one of the greatest hip-hop albums of the last 15 years with the cold vein and then basically nothing until now. So we're going to review that new record later in the show. But first, we have some music news. That's a little bit of the Beatles' 1966 classic, Paperback Writer, written by John Lennon, Greg, on a Gretsch 6120 hollow-body electric guitar. We have a couple stories from the People Will Buy Anything desk. Hmm. Uh, that guitar has recently been sold to the owner of the uh, Indianapolis Colts. I think that's a football team, sports team. Jim Ursay paid $530,000 to a cousin of John Lennon who went over to John's house one day said, hey, I really want to learn how to play guitar. Lennon gave him this guitar, never thinking that eventually it would be worth more than half a million dollars. This is not the only guitar that's getting big bucks. Rick Nielsen from the hometown heroes here in Chicago, or really Rockford, Illinois, Cheap Trick, is selling off some of the apparently 400 guitars in his infamous legendary guitar collection. He is not selling the five-neck checkerboard guitar, but he sold a 1956 Sunburst Gibson Les Paul Jr. for almost $6,000, and he sold a 1959 Gibson ES-330T for more than $7,000. I mean, this is extraordinary, right? He's pruning the collection. He thinks they should go to good homes because you can't play 400 guitars at once, <laughs> even if you're Rick Nielsen. Yeah, I, you know, I've been in the Rick Nielsen basement in Rockford where he has all those guitars. I mean, it is just wall-to-wall six-string. It's incredible. You know, speaking of fanatics, there ain't no fanatic like an Elvis fanatic, and it turns out Jack White is one of those. He bought the 1953 acetate of what is the first Elvis Presley recording. My happiness back with That's When Your Heartaches Begin. Evening shadows make me blue When each weary day is through 
How I long to be with you, my happiness. He bought it for three hundred thousand dollars. And he's giving it back to us. Well, not giving it. He's going to sell it back to us. He is going to reissue the single on vinyl for this coming record store day. Well, the reason I called this the people will buy anything, all of those purchases seem pretty valid, okay? But have you followed this story about eBay and the bag of air for sale from a Kanye West concert? Oh, my God. Somebody put up um, a Ziploc bag full of air, allegedly from a Kanye West show, and it got 90 bidders driving the price up to $60,000 before eBay, the auction site, took it off and said, this is a scam. I don't even know what that means. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. No, it's not. It gets the people going. But now a whole lot of people have been imitating that, putting up other air from other concerts, uh, including Garth Brooks, uh, a more Kanye (laughs) air. There's even somebody on eBay who is pushing a bag of, quote-unquote, flatulence from Kanye West, available for the buy-it-now price of a mere $5, Greg. Jim, this show is full of hot air, so why not? You know, why not try to sell that to people? I mean, maybe we, we, we need to do that, yeah. I mean... As rock memorabilia goes, I would kill to own a pair of drumsticks that John Bonham had, for example. But we should toss it out to listeners. What piece of rock memorabilia do you own or do you wish you could own? Are you interested in holding these relics of the saints? Give us a call at 888-859-1800. She keeps them always in a pretty cabinet she says, just like Marie Antoinette, a building a remedy for Chris Job and Kennedy. And at a time of invitation, you can't take Caviar and cigarettes, well versed in etiquette, extraordinarily nice. She's a killer, queen, got body gelatine, dynamite with a laser beam, guaranteed to blow your mind. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's Queen performing Killer Queen from their 1974 album Sheer Heart Attack. I mean, that tune never gets old, right? It was the first U.S. hit for the band, but uh, one of many for its label, Electra Records. And that historic label is celebrating its 65th anniversary this year. And so we go back to our conversation with founder Jack Holzman. We spoke with him in 2011 when he was being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Greg, when Holtzman opened Electra's doors in 1950, it was part of the blossoming of the American independent record movement, with literally hundreds of small labels, each of them dedicated to different genres. Holtzman's genre of choice at first was folk, and Electra became home to Judy Collins and Theodore Bickell, among others. But as the label grew, it really spread out. Blues, rock, funk, pop, world music, all of them were added to the roster. Some of the names, The Stooges, The Doors, Love, Carly Simon, and Harry Chapin. Over the years, as Elektra has gone through a number of transitions, including joining the major label Warner Music, Jack Holzman experienced every stage of the record business, all the ups and downs. So he's got a lot of wisdom to offer. Here he is in 2011. Jack, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for having me here. Jack, you entered the record business before there even was much of a business. How'd you get on the path? Well, imagine a kid who loves music, who loves everything that has to do with radio and audio electronics back before there was an audio industry, 
who is very closed in, who never can imagine himself ever working for anyone else. And suddenly he sees one day a picture of Dr. Peter Goldmark from the CBS labs standing beside a stack, a giant stack, much taller than Dr. Goldmark, of 78 RPM albums. And under his arm, he has a very tiny stack of equivalent LPs. Hmm. Now, that was a big thing going off in my head because it indicated to me that it was possible to start your own record company where you could advance your tastes and work for yourself, and if you were lucky, you might actually make a living doing it. So I decided to start Electra Records. I had two passions, both of which I I was able to make use of as Electra progressed. First was folk music. And I started with Gene Ritchie and the songs of her Kentucky Mountain family, followed it up by uh, the songs that Frank Warner had collected from the North Carolina mountains, and continued on this trajectory for years. Oh, love is teasing and love is pleasing. Love's a pleasure when first it is new. But as love grows older, it still grows colder fades away like the morning dew Come all you fair maids now take a warning Don't never heed what a young man say He is like a star on some foggy morning When you think he's near he is far away Eventually we got to a point where Electra was self-sustaining, but that took about eight years. But now, now this began when you were still at St. John's College and you were running out of your dorm room in 1950. Is that right? I, I went. I matriculated in 1948, and this was 1950. October 10th is the first entry in the books, which is why we celebrate the Electra year from October 10th of 2010 until October, I guess, October 10th of uh, 2011. No, there's an empty dorm room, and I need a place to work out of because I didn't want to confuse my St. John's (laughs) studies with whatever else I was doing, which was extracurricular. But St. John's was a very unusual school. It had no textbooks. And I started, made my first album, which happened to be an album of Modern Leader, which nobody was interested in, uh, and quickly switched to folk music, because with folk music, you could have a very special, a non-duplicatable performance or exposition by an artist that nobody else would be able to copy. He's the kind of guy puts on a motorcycle jacket and he weighs about 105. He's the kind of surfer, got a whole daddy haircut, and you wonder how he'll ever survive. He's the kind of frogman wearing 20 pounds of counterweights and sinking in the sea like a stone. He's the kind of soldier, got no sense of direction, and they send him in the jungle alone. But when the frog's on the pumpkin and the little girls are jumping, he's a hard-loving son of a gun. He's got a Spoonful of fun. You were pretty ambitious on a number of levels, Jack, not only starting your own label in the face of, uh, you know, there were major labels back then that were dominating the industry. And then not only that, there's an artistic side to what you were doing as well. I mean, you love this music and you were recording a lot of it yourself. I mean, there's the story of Jack Holzman on his Vespa motor scooter with a PT6 tape machine strapped right. across your back, right? Recording these artists in their, in their uh, homes? Uh, uh, 
Absolutely. I did pack my Vespa with a mic stand, one microphone, a set of tank headphones that I had bought surplus, and a MagnaCord PT6 recorder. It was a splendid little machine. And I would go to people's homes, and I would set, we'd set up blankets against the wall to deaden the sound a bit. The sound that I was looking for was the artist to be in front of the speaker. It was you and the artist in the room together. I went down to that St. James Infirmary And I saw some plasma there I upped and asked the doctor man Now was the donor dark affair The doctor laughed a great big laugh And he puffed it right in my face He says, a molecule is a molecule, son And the damn thing has no race And that was news, yes, that was news that was very, very, very special news Cause ever since that day we've had those free and deep blues When I first recorded Josh White, who had, I thought had always been very, very badly recorded, when we were in the first session and he heard the first playback, he said, you're going to get that on the disc, and I guarantee that we would. But I had... Every artist that I recorded, I had a sound design in mind for them. And these are the things, there was no place to learn this except by doing it and making mistakes and remembering those mistakes and improving what you did in the future. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the, you know, in the 50s, it wasn't a massive market for folk music necessarily, but the time sort of caught up with it. By the late 50s, certainly by the early 60s, folk was everywhere. So you were, you were the right man with the right label at the right time, I would imagine. Well, I thought we fit in quite well. By that time, we had a very successful catalog. We had major artists like Ed McCurdy and Josh White and Theo Bickell, who was so important for us. It was very, very tough for us to get radio play because that was the primary... Uh, the way you moved folk music and the way was people talking about it with each other and playing records uh, for their friends when they were over to the house. The very, very few radio shows were mostly on public radio stations at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. But over time, that changed, and college radio became especially important. And it was nice to be in on something early, and I think that's generally the story of Electra. I followed my interests mm. when I had those interests. I wasn't waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. It's a very enlightened attitude. Just talking to you, Jack, about your story, you can sense you're, you're a huge music lover that's still coming through to this day. It seems like that's where the music industry has lost its way in a lot of ways, that people who don't really love music or don't know much about music are running these big corporations now. And yet you were able to do it back, back in that era kind of just on an instinctual basis, not thinking about commerciality necessarily, but about the art itself. It's certainly true of most independent labels. But even the attitudes of some of the major label groups, I'm still associated with the Warner Music Group because I merged Electra with Warner and Atlantic Records in 1970 so that we could afford our own domestic distribution and our own overseas distribution. It's a decision I never regretted, but the brilliance of the chairman of, the, of Warner Communications was he let us each run our units without, without bothering us at all. We cooperated where cooperation was required, but we would go after the same artists. The chairman felt, you know, if I've got you and Amit Erdogan going after the same artists, one of you guys are going to get it. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you about the other music groups. I observe Universal and Sony and what is left of EMI. 
I know the Warner Music Group, and I think that attitude is reasonably prevalent within Warner Music Group. Otherwise, I still wouldn't be associated. Mm -hmm. Now, you made the transition. You said you followed the music with the folk era, and now you're transitioning into the rock era. The Paul Butterfield Band was a big part of that. Yes, very much so. Blues with a feeling That's what I have today A racially integrated group based out of Chicago, a white guy at the forefront playing the blues. Not exactly a stock move at that point. I mean, it would certainly become hugely popular within a couple of years. But again, what led you to this group in particular? I never noticed it was a racially mixed band. I'm a guy who's used to being in New York City and seeing racially mixed jazz groups. It made no impression on me at all. First of all, I didn't find the Butterfield Blues Band. Paul Rothschild, our producer, found it. And he called me when I was in London and said, I found this band and I think we should record him. And I said, yes, go, by, go right ahead. I didn't do this by myself. I worked with very good people who were carefully selected and trusted their instincts. Yes, I did sign major groups like Queen of the Doors, which were personal signings. But all of the things that went to make up Electra over the years were contributions by many other people who saw the way we worked, wanted to see Electra survive, and helped me. continue our conversation with veteran record executive Jack Holtzman after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, we review a new album from the alternative hip-hop duo Cannibal Ox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and our guest this week is Electra Records founder Jack Holzman. The label is celebrating its 65th birthday this year, and when we spoke with Jack in 2011, he had just been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This song, of course, is the electro release You're So Vain by Carly Simon, a classic tune about an obnoxious person. It's long been the subject of debate who that person was. Mm -hmm. But now, Jack, it could potentially characterize any number of artists you dealt with over the years on Electra's roster. Talented people, for sure, Mm -hmm. but Jack, you never did things the easy way, whether it was signing temperamental artists or battling over making records retail-friendly. You've dealt, right, with some legendarily difficult characters. <laughs> oh, th- there was only one person I ever tossed off the label, and that was Delaney Bramlett, Delaney and Bonnie. I should have known that when he put his wife's name second to his name that that trouble would be brewing. <laughs> but, yes, I had, uh, I guess, what seemed to the outside like difficult artists, but for the most part I had no trouble with any of my artists. I was intimately involved with all of the artists because... I was their surrogate for the audience. I didn't always attend every recording session. The Doors purposefully asked me not to be at the sessions because they thought I'd make them nervous. But I worked on all of the material with the artist before we went in. We never went into a session without knowing exactly what it was we were going to record. That didn't mean we were rigid. That left lots of knowing what you're going to do leaves you room, gives you license to experiment. But I rarely had problems with artists, even the reportedly difficult ones. Okay, all right. But here you have the MC5 debuts with a record yep. Kick Out the Jams, mm-hmm. part of the White Panther Party in Detroit, with a manifesto in the middle of yeah. their, their album cover calling for a, a violent revolution, guns, dope, and, and blanking in the streets. Yeah. I, I could see how some retailers uh, might object to that policy. I looked upon that as a sort of a form of anthropology. <laughs> I was interested in how the MC5 used their music to advance their agenda, which is why I wanted to record them. Of course, they also said you really have to take this other sort of mascot group we have, which turned out to be the Stooges, that I was a bit resistant to at the beginning, but that Danny Fields, who was one of our artist relations people, talked me into. And it's like someone has talked you into buying a fine painting, except you didn't know it was a fine painting at the time, and later becomes enormously valuable. I was willing to take chances. I guess that was the difference. I was of the opinion that if you made the records carefully, at reasonable cost, and everybody was prepared, the worst thing that could happen 
was that the record didn't work, at which point you give the masters back to the artist and wish them well. But it did work. What about Love and Arthur Lee? I mean, a famously eccentric and, and difficult character. Another artist like the Stooges or Lee MC5, whose influence only came out of the wash a decade or two decades after those records. Yeah. That's a shame. But Arthur Lee is enormously important in the history of Electra. Back in 1960, late 65, early 66, I thought I had signed The Love and Spoonful, only to find out that I hadn't signed The Love and Spoonful, and I was downcast because John Sebastian, who was the leader of the group, and I were good friends, but he had signed a publishing contract, which turned out to also be a recording contract, and I was without my group. I was desperately looking for the kind of rock group that made sense in that, uh, as I've said before, you could boogie and, and feel that you were being intellectually stimulated at the same time. And I would go to all kinds of clubs. I was in Los Angeles, and I went through a list of the clubs in the local weekly free press newspaper, and I saw a group called Love, which I had never heard before. What an interesting name for a group. So I went there, and I went into this club that was like the black hole of Calcutta, (laughs) uh, but with the wildest scene, girls with perfectly ironed hair dancing, and Arthur standing on the stage looking through these prismatic sunglasses with one lens red and one lens uh, bluish green, and uh, I heard Hey Joe and My Little Red Book, and I heard some other very, very unusual songs, and I knew that I had found my band, and I had Arthur signed within four or five days. I thumbed right through my little red book, I wasn't going to sit and cry, and I went from A to C, I took out every pretty girl in town, they danced with me, and as I held them, all I did was talk about you, hear your name and well, I start to cry. The group was amazing, and Arthur was one of the few true musical geniuses I have ever met. He was just terrific. He had one serious failing. He would not leave Los Angeles to tour or to work with the group. He only wanted to play in L.A., so he turned down an opportunity to be at the Monterey Pop Festival. That was a shame because they would have been terrific there. Yeah. But we continued to work with Arthur through four albums, and the third album was Love Forever Changes, which most people think is one of the top 20 rock and roll albums of all time, certainly one of the most influential. Life goes on here Day after day I don't know if I am living or if I'm supposed to be Sometimes my life is so eerie And if you think I'm happy Paint me yellow Arthur also did me one other gigantic favor. One night I was, I sort of went to the club to see him at what was 2 o'clock in the morning for me because I had just gotten off an airplane from New York. And he said, you ought to stick around for the other band. I think they're talented. And that other band was The Doors. Yeah. <laughs>
Tell us about Morrison. I mean, he was just recently posthumously exonerated of exposing himself in Miami. He never should have been accused in the first place. Well, he never should have been tried in the first place. I think if if Jim is aware of any of this, he would be really pissed off that he that he was pardoned. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Again, not an easy guy, a guy who wanted cultural, intellectual, artistic revolution at every turn. What was the so real what? Jim Morrison like? <laughs> Well, was he fun to hang out? Could you go out and have a beer with Jim Morrison? Would, yes. would it be interesting? The problem was, could you go out and have a drink with Jim Morrison? Yes, if you only had one drink to every one of Jim's five. <laughs> because you did not want to go glass for glass, arm for arm with Jim Morrison, you would not survive. <laughs> but uh, I remember a conversation with Jim one night. Uh, Jim and I shared an interest in literature and an interest in film. And we were out there and we were talking about film and stuff. And, and he thought I was being too cautious. And he says, Jack, you got to live closer out on the edge. And I said, yeah, Jim, I don't mind living on the edge. The trick is not to bleed. <laughs> and unfortunately, yeah. he bled. Yeah. But he was, he was a gentle spirit. And the, the secret of working with Jim was just let him be. The time to hesitate is through. No time to wallow in the mire Try now we can only lose And our love become a funeral pyre Come on baby, light my fire Come on baby, light my fire Try to set the night on fire He was a member of the band, and I never would speak to Jim separately from the rest of the group. I always spoke to the group with my one voice and heard what they wanted with their one voice. Everybody didn't agree, nothing would happen. And I thought that was that was remarkable. They shared all publishing royalties equally, no matter who, who had written the song, because they were all necessary to prepare the arrangement and, and to flesh out the promise of the song. One more question of legendary excesses. Sure. Queen, for a time, one of the biggest right. bands of the 70s, infamous were its press parties, its junkets, its album launches. And to this day, I mean, Greg and I were kids when Jazz by Queen came out, but that was supposed to be a bacchanal unrecognized in the history of the music industry, as, as were all the Queen album launch parties. Was it really that mm -hmm. much fun? I didn't go to them. <laughs> Most of the queen, queen launch parties happened in the UK. Mm. I didn't socialize a lot with the artists, and the reason there was a reason for that. There would come a time when I would have to say something hard to them, perhaps. And if I was too friendly, it made it difficult for me to tell them the truth. And the artists appreciated that. Over the years, I've maintained close touch with all of my artists and see them and write to them and uh, have conversations with them constantly. It's been a real treat to have a relationship with Carly Simon of, of 40 years, Judy Collins of God over 50 years. We're, we're very close. It was a delicate dance in terms of dealing with the egos, the personalities, the artistic sensitivities, mm -hmm. you know, the... Paul Butterfield debut record was recorded three times before you felt mm -hmm. they got it right. I know that you had a hand in mixing the Stooges' first album because you weren't happy right. with the way it initially sounded. How were you able to do this without, say, offending the artistic sensibility? Because you obviously was a, were a music lover, but at the same time there was something you were not hearing that you didn't like. How would you communicate this to the artist, and how would they take it? Well, uh, when I heard the first mixes of the Stooges... 
the power of the band. What is uh, the thing that brought me to rock and roll was the incredible energy of it. There are things you could do with a rock band in terms of underlining and emphasizing and bringing a lyric to a very, very large audience and giving it an explosive frame that was so exciting to me. That went beyond folk music. It went beyond so-called folk rock, which I always thought was rather an abysmal uh, (laughs) combination. So when I heard the mixes for the album, I I knew that uh, for the Stooges' first album, I knew that wasn't quite right. So we had a small mixing facility at our New York offices in addition to our studios, which we had out on the West Coast. And I went in and put the master tapes on, and I just decided to turn the volume of everything up so the needles were pinning <laughs> on every track. I listened to that, and I rather liked that. <laughs> and the Stooges liked that. Uh-huh. That was the end of that. Everybody thought, that's neat. Let's issue it that way. So we made the mix that way, and that's what we released. So messed up. I want you In doing that, you must have realized, well, I'm, I may just be killing their chances for any radio programmer to be playing this, because he probably would put it on and say, what's, what's this noise, right? Yeah, well, you always have that kind of problem, and I don't worry about it. I make records the way I think the record should be made, and I worry about the marketing, which is really nothing fancier than connecting willing ears to interesting music. And we would find somebody somewhere who would play it, would write it, and we'd get the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. The Stooges never sold a lot of records, but they were enormously influential. The records are still very much in print. And that's what is meaningful to me, is that all of the things that I worked on are still, for the most part, pretty much available out there. And the beauty of digital means that it's very easy and inexpensive to release almost entire catalogs. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Jack, because you came into the music industry at a time of a great technological change, the transition to the 33 and a third vinyl album. And now we're seeing this transition to digital, obviously. What would you tell the aspiring Jack Holzman of today about starting their own label? Are there any lessons you would you would impart to them? Oh, absolutely. First of all, go do it. But ask yourself, are you really willing to put in the time and effort because it's it's You'll be even when you're sleeping, you're going to be dreaming about what you're doing. Hmm. Are you willing to back the artist? Are you willing to go for your own taste and trust your own taste and not chase the charts as to what seems to be popular at the moment? If you're willing to do that and you can put together enough money to keep this thing going, I'd say absolutely do it because today is not dissimilar 
It does bear a resemblance to when I started, when there was a more level playing field. First of all, back in the 50s and early 60s, the majors were off in a world by themselves. We were creating a fuller universe of material, music, entertainment that people could draw upon. So I think if you've got the will and the stamina to do it, and you love music, go ahead and take your shot. Although you've spoken many times before A sight of birth he leaves you by a door And now you know he doesn't understand And all you need is the warmth of his hand Jack Holzman, it's been a real treat having you on Sound Opinions. I had a wonderful time. Take good care, guys. And if it's my loving blood would dance. You can listen to this conversation again or any of our interviews at soundopinions.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast to be up to date every week. Visit iTunes.com slash soundopinions. We also want to invite you to share your own sound opinions on the show. What are your favorite electro recordings? As music fans and consumers, do you even pay attention to record labels? Call us at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with a trip to the desert island featuring one of my favorite electro moments. Stay tuned. And on that day all of All as free as seabirds climb the skies And you will love when love comes your way And when it comes I have nothing more to say Now you know you don't need his hand Now you know you don't have to understand Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and that is a track called Psalm 82 from the new Cannibal Ox record, Blade of the Ronin. New Cannibal Ox record, that is great news to fans of underground hip-hop, especially fans of the debut album by this Harlem duo, Vast Air and Vordul Mega. They put out a record in 2001 called Cold Vein that is 
justly celebrated as one of the landmark releases of the last 15 years in hip-hop. I think part of the appeal of the record, not only the great MCs on this record, but the production by El Producto, LP, as he was getting his Def Jux label off the ground in New York City, really helped establish a new sound for underground hip-hop. And I think in time, Jim, this record has grown in stature. I mean, Mm -hmm. it, it, it seems like with each passing year, People use it as a reference point for the start of a new era in what hip-hop could sound like, what it could do, the overall feel and texture of the genre. You know, in the time since then, though, uh, we've seen a falling out between the MCs and LP. They have worked on various solo projects, but nothing really together until they put out an EP in 2013. There was some hope that, hey, they, they were going to get together, they were going to do something in the album-length vein, similar to Cold Vein in the near future. Finally, here it is. We have a new Cannibal Ox record, only the second album from this duo in this century. It's called Blade of the Ronin, and here's a track called Blade, the Art of Ox on Sound Opinions. The Art of Ox from Cannibal Ox, the new album Blade of the Ronin. Greg, you know, to be sure, over the last 14, 15 years, there has been music from both Vast Air and Verdul Mega on their own. But nothing either of them has done as a solo artist has been as good as what they did with Cannibal Ox. And unfortunately, this new Cannibal Ox album is not as good as what Cannibal Ox did with LP. The new producer, Bill Cosmique, does a pretty good job. This this is not a bad production, a lot of psychedelic ambience, a lot of going to that well of the Wu-Tang Clan for sort of Asian-influenced, trippy, dreamy sounds, and both MCs are a joy to listen to. These guys have got some great chops. But a couple of problems with this album, 19 tracks, it's too long. There's nothing new, really, either lyrically, 
or musically a lot of sort of sci-fi, fantasy, superhero, alternate universe imagining going on. I mean, just, you know, look at some of the titles, Gotham, Ox City, The Horizon, Interlude, Harlem Nights. It feels old to me in a lot of ways. It would have been nice if they were still breaking ground the way they did on that debut album, which remains a classic. Nevertheless, I think if you care about hip-hop, this is coming in the context of a lot of great creative stuff. I was saying that just a couple of weeks ago. It's not as good as Run the Jewels, but it's still better than much of what's being done in hip-hop, and you should give it a try it. Jim, I have to agree with you. I'm a huge fan of this duo, as you know. Uh, in particular, Vast Air is one of my favorite MCs of all time. He's got that very intense, very sharply enunciated style. I, mm. I think within a, two or three syllables, you know it's Vast Air. And I think that's a, a truly distinctive thing about any great MCs that you could, you know, you, you only need to hear a couple of words out of their mouths before you know who it is. And he has that sort of very intense, very identifiable sound that is all his own. I can't think of anybody else that could make a phrase like Ali Ali Oxen Free sound kind of menacing. You know, yeah. it's like <laughs> that's the single best line on the whole album. You know, right? and it's great. And I think when you said that as a kid, it's about, okay, it's a safe zone. You could come out of hiding now. And I think this whole album is about Everything's in the shadows. Everything's hiding. The other thing I like, the imagery, even though it does, there's a lot of references to Iron Galaxy in this record, you know, going back to the a track from the Cold Vein album, this merger of futurism, sci-fi, and ancient Egypt. Like, the future's set in ancient Egypt. There's these biblical references, Old Testament references, combining with these scientific images. But, but that, that ain't a new shtick. No, it's not. And the other thing that bugs me, I think you nailed it with the production. I think I would have loved to have heard an entire album with these two guys working with Black Milk because he's the producer on that track, Blade, The Art of Ox, mm. that, that sort of very dramatic style that I think very much suits the kind of things that they are talking about in these verses. Whereas Bill Cosmique is is very much content to sort of play a background role, more more textured. And you're right. It does start to blend together a little bit from a from a sonic standpoint over the course of those tracks. So yes, I can't say it's a, a disappointment because anything from these guys is gonna at least have some quality to it, but it is definitely not a classic like the Cold Vein was. It's a try it record for me. I tell you little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible, we'd like to take a trip to the desert island and play a track we cannot live without. Jim, this week it's your turn. Thanks, Greg. You know, we get a lot of email here at Sound Opinions. All of it gets read, but unfortunately we can't respond to everything ourselves. It does, however, register. And a listener named Fred Meyer heard our original conversation with Jack Holtzman, the founder of Electro Records. And he said, I'm a regular listener, guys. In tonight's program with Jack Holtzman, you mentioned his work with Paul Butterfield. I'd love to hear you fellas present some history and analysis of Butterfield's career, particularly the track East West. Seems like Fred grew up in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, which is where Paul Butterfield grew up. And I think that song in particular, East West, doesn't get nearly the attention it deserves in the rock history books because I think it is not only the birth of a merger with Western music and Indian raga, but the birth of psychedelic rock 
in a lot of ways. It was written by the guitarist, Mike Bloomfield, who had had his first profound acid trip in 1965 and was listening to some Indian raga records. And suddenly the key to the universe was unlocked, as well as the complicated modes and rhythms of, of that Indian music. He brought it into the Butterfield Band, and they began to work on this very long jam. The way that it made the second Butterfield album, which is titled East West, after the song, it's only 13 minutes in length, but it could often go on as long as half an hour when they played it live. In fact, in early 66, they went and did a week-long series of shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco. And in attendance every night were the Grateful Dead before they really coalesced as a band. They would give credit to... Butterfield saying the birth of the dead sound was really inspired by that song East West. It had ramifications on the other side of the world, too, because Joe Boyd tells the story that he signed Fairport Convention because he saw a young Richard Thompson sitting, playing guitar, playing East West. This song is forgotten in a lot of ways because it was from the blues world. But the stuff that these guys are doing here, Butterfield, who is a harmonica player, is commenting on the droning raga-like melodies that Bloomfield is playing with these commenting harmonica harmonies, right? And it really is neat. The drums are doing that kind of uh, multi-textured, polyrhythmic Indian feel at different points. There's all sorts of stuff happening. And there's also a lot of free jazz in this mix. So when you have later bands like the Stooges or the MC5, it's all really coming from this incredible song, East West. It's about time we give some respect to Chicago and Paul Butterfield and the blues band with this song, East West, on Sound Opinions.
That's the psychedelic classic East West by the Paul Butterfield band, My Desert Island Jukebox Pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Jim, great track. And uh, next week we're going to be back from the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas, with a full report on the great bands that we saw there. As always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. talking about um, the review of the Madonna album. You know, you're either a fan of hers or you're not, but why waste your time reviewing a bad album? You should be, um, you could be, reviewing albums that, you know, maybe something that would tweak our imagination or, you know, something that would, it's just not a waste of time. I think Madonna and the rest of these bad albums that you say trash it, it's just a waste of time. Review something good and turn us on to some new music. I know we need new music. Anyway, that's my opinion. Have a good day. I come to you with all my flaws. Hello, my name is Cletus Johnson. I'm calling about geography. It seems that there was a comment about a recording studio in a limestone mine in Independence, Missouri including some in Independence, Missouri's Pixley Limestone Mine. I don't know what was in the water in this town outside of St. Louis. Uh, Independence is on the west side of the state of Missouri. St. Louis is on the east side. Independence is 10 miles from Kansas City, Missouri. All right, that's all. Bye-bye. Don't know much about geography. Don't know much trigonometry. Don't know much about algebra. Don't know what a slide rule is for. Hey guys, my name is Chris. I'm from uh, Andon, Connecticut, and I wanted to suggest an album to you guys. You guys got to check out Emily Sande. I don't know if you've ever reviewed her stuff, and uh, I just can't understand why she hasn't gotten more publicity. She's got a phenomenal voice, and she writes her own stuff. She's a true artist. We have Emily Sunday in the studio with Wayne Plummer. Uh, Emily, what are you going to play for us next? We're going to start with Next to Me. There's a lot of artists out here that aren't really all that true and don't write their own stuff. She really is. So when you get a chance, check it out. Check out Emily Sunday's uh, album called um, Our Version of Events. Okay? I love listening to your show and keep on trucking. Bye. You won't find I'm drinking on the table. 
Jim and Greg, yeah, this is uh, Dan, and I'm from uh, Chicago, and I listen to your show every week. And I just uh, like your tribute to uh, Albert Mazel's. Uh, I just was uh, kind of surprised to hear you guys hadn't seen uh, their documentary about the Beatles, which is actually uh, pretty uh, fantastic. The last time it was released on DVD, it was actually uh, featured a, a terrific making of documentary as a bonus feature that actually featured a extensive interview with Albert Mazel's. Uh, where he talks and says some really great things about the making of the film and about filmmaking in general, and where you actually get to see you get to see him and hear his voice, and uh, uh, he uh, seems like a very uh, fine gentleman. Of course, there's so many times in the outtakes when you see my brother, um, because I have to turn the camera on to him at the end to be shot in order to get the synchronization. Two, four, two. Roger. Okay. But. You see me too because you're looking through my eye when you're looking at the screen. Love the show and uh, hope the good work as everybody else does. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.